Good morning, friends. I'm Jeremiah Gamble from Theater for the Thirsty, and uh, this morning I get to share scripture with you, and after this I'm going to head downstairs to share some stories with the kids, and then this evening I'm going to be performing my one-man show on the life of Christ, The Rough and the Holy, so I'd love to see you there tonight. And right now, let's hear the good news. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a dry, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Amen. Thank you, Jeremiah. What a profound passage. I wonder if you'd join me in prayer as we open it up. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word. We 
Thank you for the clarity of this portrait of your Son, Jesus, our Savior and good King. We confess to you today, Lord, that we need you. We confess to you that we need good news. We've been dealing with all kinds of heartaches ourselves, and we need the good news of God. We thank you, Father, that we do have it through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that he chose to identify with us in this form that we have just heard. We bless you, Lord, for the power of your word, and we ask that perhaps today you would open our minds, soften our hearts, that we could receive what you want us to learn about you and how it might even apply to our lives today. Now I ask God by faith that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. So good to see you. My name's Adrian, and if we haven't yet met, love to connect with you after the service. We are uh, journeying through a year-long study of the overarching story of the Bible. It's called God's Story, Our Story, as we seek to understand what God has done in history as He's revealed Himself through the pages of the Bible and how that applies to our lives. And today we enter into a portion of Scripture that's called the prophetic literature, the the prophecies of the Old Testament, and we'll hit on it a couple different times as we go through uh, portions of the Old Testament. We certainly won't be able to hit it all, but today we're going to enter into Isaiah 53 that you just heard Jeremiah read so beautifully for us, and I think there's much for us to learn from this passage about our Savior Jesus and about His good Word for us and about the truth of the Scriptures as it would apply to us wherever we are today. You know, it strikes me as we hear that passage that we expect our kings to come with pomp and pride. Do we not? We expect our kings to come with pomp and pride and to stand at a distance away from us. And yet the king comes with humility and suffering, and He chooses to stand not at a distance from us, but right by our side. This is the good King of Isaiah 52 and 53. If you were with us this past Sunday, you'll remember that we looked at the kingdom that was torn in two, and we looked at one of the saddest episodes in the Bible in which Israel had devolved into the worst forms of pride and idolatry and greed and selfishness. And God said, a kingdom set against God cannot stand. A house set against God cannot stand. A man divided within himself, a woman divided within herself cannot stand. And that was true in Israel, and so God divided it. And so you have the kingdom of Israel, or Ephraim, to the north, and the kingdom of Judah to the south. If you need review, you can go back to last week's message and listen to that online, but the kingdom of Judah to the south, and for 200 years, 
these kingdoms are split and they're living underneath the reign of some really immoral and unjust kings. And into that situation, it's a very dark, bleak period for Judah and Israel for, for these hundreds of years, at the end of which the northern kingdom is sacked, the kingdom of Israel is sacked by Assyria. And about that time, the prophet Isaiah rises to prominence shortly before the southern kingdom of Judah will likewise be sacked by Babylon. So you have the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south, and both of them, shortly after this time that Isaiah is writing, are destroyed. And it's going into the time that we'll talk about next week called the Diaspora, when uh, the people of Israel and Judah are dispersed across the known world. And throughout these centuries, and really throughout the Bible, God in his love sends these prophets to Israel, sends these prophets to Judah to speak words of blessing to the people, calling them back to right living before God and foretelling for them what will come in the future. And uh, he's whispering to Israel, inviting them, shouting in some cases to Israel, come back to me. You have two different streams that are going on in the Bible at the same time right now. You have one stream that's called the historical books, which is 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles and a couple others. And you see a number of these kings and priests that are listed there. And at the same time, you have what's called the prophetic literature, prophetic books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and others that are being written at the same time as these prophets are speaking these words sometimes of spiritual lament Sometimes spiritual blessing and hope, sometimes an invitation to restoration to the people of Israel living under these kings that are found in those historical sections. They're both going on at the same time. So you have these two different sections, and today, well, we're going to look at, well, one of the prophets, Isaiah. He was one of the major prophets, but whether it be the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah or minor prophets and prophetesses like Huldah and Shemaiah, Either way, these were people of God speaking on behalf of God to the people of Israel and Judah, inviting them back, whispering to them, inviting them back to God. The prophets did two things. We think of prophecy as foretelling the future, and it is that. It does that at times, that it foretells what God is going to do in the future. We'll see that some today. But the majority of the prophetic literature is Forth-telling, telling forth what God wants from his people, what God wants from us. That's what the prophets are doing. Now, the mountain of the Old Testament pro- prophetic literature is probably the book of Isaiah. And if that be so, then the Mount Everest of that mountain range is Isaiah 52 and 53 that you just heard. This suffering servant This explanation that God did indeed promise a Messiah to his people and only Jesus fulfills the requirements of Messiah that you see written in Isaiah 52 and 53. There are many Jews who now trust in Christ and the reason that they trust in Christ as Yeshua, as Messiah, is because of these passages, Isaiah 52 and 53. For those of us who follow Christ, it almost looks like they were written underneath the shadow of the cross that Isaiah was looking forth into 
the future 700 years and he sees the cross and he describes for Israel 700 years in advance, this is what your Messiah is going to look like. Here's a firsthand portrait of the passion of the Christ. Can you tell that these are important words? These are very important words. I urge you, if you're a follower of Christ today, to spend time studying these passages meditating on Isaiah 52 and 53 and 61 that we'll get into a little bit today as well. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you're here simply asking questions, one, we are so glad you're here. Every week we have lots of people who just come here asking questions, curious about answers for life, curious about answers about Jesus, wondering who he is and whether he would apply to my life. Again, so glad that you're here. I encourage for your reading and meditation these two chapters. They are worthy of our study as they demonstrate for us who Jesus was and what his gospel is all about. Listen once again to just a portion of what you already heard Jeremiah read this morning. Here from Isaiah 53, we'll look here at verses 2 and 3. Speaking foretelling the future, what Jesus would look like. Listen, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing about his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces. One whom people look at and turn away from. That's as Jesus came. He was despised. We held him in low esteem. We esteemed him not. In other words, to use modern day parlance, he didn't come as an avenger. He didn't come as Iron Man. He didn't come as a type A, kick butt and take names, Rambo Messiah. That's what Jews of the day were looking for. That's what they wanted, a Rambo type Messiah who would come in and destroy their enemies. And interestingly to today, there are many Christians who still seem to want that from Jesus. But that's not how he came. He came as a servant, born into a small town by country roots, homely in appearance, hanging out with kids and well-known sinners. He did not have a sword in his hand. He had a towel around his shoulder and a water basin for washing feet in his hand. This is our king, and there was no majesty, there was no beauty in him to attract us to him, but yet he was God. Did you watch the royal wedding, anyone? Can I get a few hands? Go up, please. Raise them high. If we did, I will not embarrass you, okay? Many of us did watch the royal wedding. That's okay. 30 million Americans, almost one-tenth of America, watched the royal wedding. You know how many people watched it around the world? I'm glad you asked, okay. (laughs) 1.9 billion with a B, yeah. Like, I don't know, 30% of the world watched the royal wedding that recently happened. Now, I don't know a lot about royal weddings. I don't know much about royal families, but I know they don't come as humble servants. 
They come with a lot of pomp and circumstance, do they not? I really, honestly, I don't really get the infatuation. I mean, these people haven't done anything. I mean, they've just had the whole of their lives served up to them on a silver platter. Okay, but I'm not making fun of them this morning. Stop, Adrian. Come on back now. I'm just saying that is what we expect of royalty. Like if you watch the royal way and you see the outfits that they're wearing and the carriages that they come in on and the way people bow to them and every magazine under heaven is writing about them. Like who cares? Live your life, people. Right? But, but that, that's what we do with royalty. Okay? But I, I want to tell you, please hear me. If you don't know Jesus... If you're not sure that you really know Jesus, if you're kind of paying uh, this expectation that you come to church, but you don't know Jesus yourself, but please hear me, that's not how he came. He didn't come like this. Look, look, look here. He didn't come like this. This was not his carriage. He didn't come with an entourage that looks like this. He didn't have that kind of entourage with him. He didn't sit on a throne that looked like this. And he didn't wear a crown that looked like that. Can you hear where I'm going? Is anyone with me this morning? Okay, so Jesus came a different kind of way. He came a different kind of way. He came on a chariot that looked like this into Jerusalem for the passion to receive whippings and scourges. This is how he came into the holy city. He didn't have a great entourage. He had an entourage that looked more like this. Here he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, sweat, droplets of blood. Father, not my will, but yours be done. I give myself to you with an entourage around him who are taking a nap in the background. He didn't have that special throne. He came to a throne like this. And he didn't wear a throne of rubies, diamonds, and pearls. He wore a throne and wore a crown of thorns. He's the suffering, humble, life-giving servant leader, like one from whom people turn away when they see him on the streets. You ever see people on the streets and you say, ooh, that feels uncomfortable. As I was... I went into Walmart though the other day, and there's a, a paralyzed group of America uh, receiving donations, and I just watched people go in, and it was so interesting to see the way so many people looked and then looked away. Like regardless if they were going to give a dollar or not, look people in the eye. Do you hang out with such people as this? Do you look at them and love them? Because Jesus came as such people. He came as that kind of people that we would see him and we would esteem him not. Humbly, if you're taking notes, please write this down. Humbly, Jesus descended to empathize with us in the midst of our struggles. That's what the good king does. He comes down and he descends and he empathizes with us right in the midst of our struggles. He comes as a servant who is familiar with suffering, someone that we would not esteem if we saw him on the streets. He downsized from streets of gold in cities of splendor for streets of dirt in cities of strife. 
The good news of the gospel is so multifaceted to us. It is about the atonement. There's no question it's about the atonement, but it's also about this ransom that Jesus does kick tail for one. Amen. He kicks tail of Satan and steps on his face. He ransoms us far from Satan. He atones for our sins. He sets this beautiful example for us to follow. But also, Jesus descended. He descended to identify with you. Wherever you are today, you've got to know this. He descended from heaven to earth. He left streets of gold to identify with you where you are right now. The sovereign, all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing God didn't have to identify with you and me, but he did. Kings and presidents and prime ministers tend not to do that. They tend to stand aloof, perhaps even at a distance, not really caring about the ordinary man's problems. I'm not talking about anyone in particular. This is just the reality of people in power across our worldly system. But Jesus comes to identify with us as we are. He voluntarily counted himself with you and me. He voluntarily chose to feel the pangs of hunger. He chose to feel the emotional pain of betrayal. He chose to feel the existential pain of rejection. He chose to feel the relational pain of loneliness. He chose to feel the physical pain of a beating. And he chose to feel the pain of my failures and yours. Look at verse 12 here. It says, he poured out his life unto death. And he was numbered. That means he was counted. That means he identified with the transgressors. He said, whoever you are, whatever you're going through today, I'm going to be counted with you. I'll be one of you. I'll be an ordinary man like you. Though I am God, I am counted with the transgressors. Just, just sit on that for a moment. Whatever it is that you're going through today. I mean, do you read the newspapers? Do you watch the news? There's so much pain. There's so much pain. You feel it yourself. I know you do. And I do as well. And he chooses not to stand aloof from us. He understands. He says, I'm going to empathize with them. So I'm going to take on their experience. As deep and as dark as it might get, I'm going to take on their experience unto myself so they would know they have a God who actually understands what they're going through. That's your good, good king. That's what he does for us. One of my favorite verses is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. You'll see it up on the screen. This is from the message paraphrase of the Bible. And so it's a paraphrase in our contemporary language, but, but let me explain. It says, we don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. The NIV says, we don't have a high priest, who, high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Rather, we do have a high priest. We do have an intercessor in Jesus who can identify with us as we are. He's been through the weakness and the testing, all of it. He's experienced it all, all but the sin. Even the experience of being tempted to sin that we go through day in and day out. I believe Jesus was tempted to sin. He just never sinned. 
He knows that temptation. So he experienced all of this. He just never sinned. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. You take the mercy. You accept the help. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a good deal. Go to Jesus boldly. Ask him in prayer. Because he is God and because he is man, you ask him boldly, will you help me? And this scripture tells us that he will give us his grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Because humbly, he descended to empathize with you in your struggle. And humbly, I want to tell you today, if you're taking notes again, please note this. Humbly, Jesus descended as a substitute for our sins. He descended as a substitute for our sins. This word substitution is at the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The suffering servant descended onto earth to build this beautiful bridge between unholy, unjust humanity who was lost in its sin, you and me lost as we are in our human failures, and holy, just, perfect God when we could never get there on our own. So he gives his very self as a substitution for us to create this bridge by which the unholy can meet up with the holy and we can have fellowship with him. That is the gospel and that is what Jesus did for us Well, when he substituted himself on the cross. Look at verses 5 through 7 here in Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Anyone else in this room? Oh, that's what I did. I turned to my own way. That's all I did. I turned to my own way for 19 years, and even after becoming a follower of Christ, I turned to my own way on so many occasions, and still today, if I'm not leaning into Christ on a day-in and day-out basis, that's my natural operating procedure to turn to my own way. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, but what did Jesus do? The Lord took on to him the iniquity of us all. Whatever your iniquity, whatever your failure, God has taken on to his very frame. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears, he was silent. So he did not open his mouth. Oh, this is a man with no guile. I open my mouth when I'm cut off in traffic. I'm not going to say what I say. We open our mouths when we go to the local coffee shop and they don't get our double cappuccino, no whip, extra cream, caramel macchiato latte just right. Then we open our mouths. We open our mouths when someone infringes on our rights just a little bit. Then we open our mouths. He was pierced with a spear into the heart. His back was whipped 39 times by a leather cord laced with shards of glass and nails such that his flesh became like ribbons coming out of his skin. And he didn't open his mouth. 
Friends, the simple gospel message of Jesus is substitution. See, the truth is, for much of our lives, we have substituted ourselves for God. We didn't create this domain, did we? We received this domain. Okay, none of us created ourselves. And yet, if you're anything like me, you seek naturally to become king over this domain. That's my natural operating procedure, to be king over this domain. I substitute myself for God by putting myself on the throne of my life over this. I look out for me, myself, and I naturally. And the Bible calls that sin. And it says that because of that sin, there is a vast gap. This great chasm of separation between us and holy God who is unwilling to have fellowship with us in the midst of that sin. But yet, because God is so loving, he was unwilling to leave us in that sorry estate where we were seeking to be king over our own domain. And so instead, he separates Jesus for us on the cross, taking on the punishment that was justly ours. The Father sent God the Son as a substitute to take on our sin onto his very frame on the cross. We sought to substitute ourselves for God, so God chose to come and substitute himself for us. Wow. Now, you might ask, why can't God just forgive I mean, why does he have to give up his son in order for us to be forgiven? Maybe you've asked that question, or perhaps someone has asked you that question before. I can almost assure you that kids being raised in this culture will ask their parents that question. We need to have an answer for that. Why did God have to spare his own son? Well, there's many different illustrations that could be given, but perhaps to cite a, a merely economic example, let's just pretend here for a moment that I lend someone my car, and as they're backing up out of my driveway, out of my garage, they forget to open up the garage door. And they back up into the garage, they destroy the garage door, and in the process, they also destroy my bumper. Fortunately, I have insurance for both my house and for my car, so insurance covers most of it, but what remains is a $1,000 deductible on each. What do I do with that? Well, it strikes me that you have a few different options. You either can demand that that person pay the penalty of their sin, pay the penalty, if you will, of their infraction, or you can say, I will offer to pay it for you. I don't want you to pay anything. I'm just going to own that myself. Or perhaps there could be a middle ground where you say, we'll pay it together. But please notice that even if I say to that friend, I forgive you, There's still a debt that has to be paid. There's still a cost that has to be absorbed. This is the nature of true forgiveness. There's always a cost that has to be absorbed. And so while God says, I forgive you, there's a cost that must be absorbed from our sins and failures, and the cost is His perfect, spotless Son who came without any blemish or defect in order to forgive those of us who are filled with blemishes and defects. This is what he gives. The substitute of a son who came, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. But all this idea of the debt just kind of vanishing into thin air, then we're talking nonsense. God is holy without limit. He is just without compromise, and he is loving beyond all reason. And so he sends his son, Jesus, to absorb the cost of all people from all time, from the beginning of the world. 
yours included. The question is merely, do you receive it? Do you receive his grace as a gift that the righteous one gave himself for you even though you and I were far from righteous? I think this portrait of atonement, this portrait of substitution is perhaps most vividly portrayed for us by the, the Roman soldiers who were throwing dice to gamble for Jesus' clothes. And perhaps you remember this scene where they've nailed Jesus up onto that old, rugged Roman cross. And part of the crucifixion that we didn't really talk about was not just the physical pain of it, but it was the shame. So Jesus would have been stripped naked. So if you can imagine the humiliation, the shame of this teacher being stripped naked, going through the depth of physical pain that he just went through, and there are his clothes on the ground as these Romans who just nailed him to the cross are throwing dice for them. And what does Jesus do? I imagine he perhaps looked up to heaven and maybe a tear filled his eye as he looked down on those Roman soldiers and he said, Father, I'm substituting myself for them too. Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. They don't realize how vile this is. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is our example. This is our Savior to receive. This is our King to worship. God sends His Son to absorb the cost. Do you receive it? He came to set us free for all of eternity. He came to identify with us in our struggle right now. He came to atone for our sins and forgive us completely. And if you would turn forward with me to Isaiah chapter 61. I, I delight to stand here though this morning and tell you that he cares about your today as well. He cares about whatever it is that you might be going through right now. Humbly, Jesus descended to care for us in our struggles, to identify with us in our sin, to substitute himself for us. But victoriously, he ascended. Victoriously, he conquered the grave. Victoriously, he ascended into heaven to heal and restore those of us who are brokenhearted even this morning. These words here in Isaiah 61 are another prophecy that Jesus quotes at the very beginning of his public ministry, and then he puts the Bible down, and he says, today these words are fulfilled in your hearing. In me, here it is, I fulfilled these words for you. And it's all about the, this promise of Jesus restoring the brokenhearted today. Such a great salvation, though, that we have. It's not merely for yesterday's sin. It's not merely for eternity's bliss. It's also for today's restoration of the brokenhearted. Listen to Isaiah 61, 1-4. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Just imagine Jesus saying this. He goes to the synagogue, and he unscrolls the roll of Isaiah to chapter 61, 
And he stands up as the teacher in the synagogue, the beginning of his public ministry in Luke chapter 4, and he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn. And then he, he puts the scroll down and he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in my coming. You look at me, you have seen Messiah, I'm the one. And he goes on to say, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Uh, my friends, I, I don't know where you're at here though this morning, but I can't help but believe in a room this size, or perhaps you're watching online though this morning, there are some here today who feel like their tears have been their companions day and night. There's some here today who feel like all I have is a spirit of heaviness, a spirit of despair upon me, never a spirit of gladness upon me. There are probably some here today who feel like you're oppressed by your own sinful decisions, like you're captives to a way of life and to labels that other people have imposed upon you. You feel like you're brokenhearted today. Jesus, the good king, has come. And he's alive and well today, still seeking to release the oppressed. Still seeking to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Still seeking to free up the brokenhearted, to forgive sinners to heal the blind, to restore those who were oppressed, to take from you a garment of heaviness and replace it with a spirit and a garment of praise. This is our God. You may feel like your life has gone into ashes today, but you lean in to Jesus day in and day out. You receive your significance from him. You receive your sense of meaning from him. You do not idolize anyone's opinion of you. You receive him day in and day out, and the promise is this. He will take those ashes, and he will restore you into an oak tree of righteousness. He came to heal the brokenhearted, even today. What I want to do as I close this message is invite the band to come forward right now. And as they come forward, we're going to watch a little three-minute video that's a, a well-known video from a very well-known sermon by an old African-American preacher by the name of S.M. Lockridge. And I note that because you'll hear a different sermonic style from him though, than you typically hear from me. But I pray that you would just sit back and receive this description of your servant King Jesus. And as you receive it, perhaps you would extend your hands like this. Or maybe you would fall to your knees. Or maybe you would raise your hands. And then when we're done, we're just going to worship God. And you can take whatever posture you would like. 
And as we close out this video, I'll ask the, the, the prayer team leaders to come forward and, and they'd be available for you to pray with them as we go into this response song up at the front of the auditorium. I'll be up here to pray with you as well. I don't know what your portrait of Jesus is today. But I promise that if you conform in your mind the portrait of Christ to the picture of him described in the book of Isaiah, you will worship. You will worship. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent and he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. Is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is lighter. I wish I could describe him. For yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. Without him, well, the Pharisees couldn't stand it, but they found out they 